HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Corky White, professor of anthropology at Boston University. Although her focus is on Japan, Corky has a deep and fascinating focus on food, both as an academic pursuit and as a globe-trotting food lover. Today's episode is just that, a global trot through Corky's life, food, culture, and the impact of her own heritage on white food is so fascinating. Her newest book, written with her son, historian Ben Wurgaft, is called Ways of Eating. We'll get to that too, and stay tuned to learn about her grandmother's rolling pin. Let's have a listen. Corky, how did the food and anthropology thing come to you? Well, it's interesting. Thank you, Louisa. I give different answers to that different times. Give me a good answer. (laughs) I'll give you a great answer. It didn't quite happen like that because food studies were not even um, a blip on the horizon when I was interested in food. And I was told by my graduate advisor in graduate school to take everything off my resume that had to do with food or I'd never get a serious job. And indeed, that was true. That was the early 70s. And there really wasn't something legitimized, at least in classical academe, that would have to do with food, unless you were, say, an archaeologist or something, and you could talk about the remains in the toilet pit on a site or something like that. So I found that I had to bury it. And what happened was I had been a caterer and cookbook writer while I was entering graduate school in order to earn enough to go to graduate school. I had to do something, and I couldn't type. So what was there? So I got this job as a caterer at Harvard's then Center for West European Studies because uh, the wall was still up, so it had to be the West. And I was catering a luncheon for 50 and two dinners 
each week for 25. And it was just insanely difficult. I think getting the PhD in the end was easier. But this was what it was for me was a bunch of sheer accidents. I'd always been interested in food, but I never thought of myself as any kind of food professional. Even as a caterer, I was just making it up. And indeed, I did make it up. When I was catering for all these Europeanists, I thought, well, I'm not going to survive this unless I cook food that they might never have had. And then they couldn't compare it to anything. So I did. They're Western Europeanists, and I was cooking from Central Asia or the Middle East or Latin America or anywhere they just wouldn't be able to say, I've known the real thing. So that's how I got by. And indeed, I also got lucky because... Um, one day, all these recipes, I typed them out. They were because people on, at the center wanted them. And there was a pile of old dittoed manuscripts. You know what dittoing was, but maybe people don't. And they were on the desk. And someone called me and said, I'm going to publish your cookbook. And I said, what cookbook? I don't have a cookbook. And he said, well, I picked up all those recipes because I was at lunch the other day at the center and I'm in New York and I'm the head of basic books and I'm going to do it. And I was just hornswoggled and I came up with some more recipes so he'd have enough. And that's how the first one happened. The luckier part even of that, I mean, if that isn't luck, was that this friend of the publisher was my favorite New Yorker cartoonist. His name was Ed Corin. And he drew these fabulous, neurotic, fuzzy creatures and really spoke to me. So he was the illustrator of actually all the editions of my cookbooks. And so when I did get to graduate school, I actually had something of a profile, but it was not what I was really going to do. I was going to do Japan anthropology, which is what I am, a Japan anthropologist. But I now am allowed to teach food anthropology. That didn't happen until relatively recently. That became a legitimate form of inquiry or topic of interest. And why did it suddenly get interesting to you? It, it was always interesting to me, but it became something legitimate, I think, when we started eating other people's food. That's how I think about it. When we weren't just narrowly confined to some narrow repertory of foods that we eat or our family ate or something. It depends on where you were, where that happened. But in New England, it happened relatively later than elsewhere. California, they were doing it. And New York, they were doing it. But I think here, we crossed over the lines probably in the mid to late 70s. And people started seeing food as more than the study of nutrition or the study of world hunger or the study of dietetics. And then the old-fashioned disciplines like history got a hold of it. It happened gradually, depending on where you were. But I wasn't really teaching food until I had actually spent six summers during my regular university term. I could get the summer off teaching food in Hawaii at the University of Hawaii. So six summers in a row, I was just wallowing in it. And I thought, come on now, we can do this at home too. So finally, I did get to bring the course home. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to teach food in Hawaii. There's no better place for the crossroads of foods. What are the major themes that are about food and anthropology? I know that's a stupid 
no, open-ended no, question, but is it what people eat or how they eat it or ritual? What is it? It's pretty much all of the above. Anthropology touches everything. <laughs> we get away with murder. My current study is an ethnographic study of the Japanese whiskey industry, just as an example <laughs> of how we can do things. But yes, the themes and approaches in anthropology are definitely through what we call culture, the idea of what we eat expressing an identity or allowing for the demonstration of values, the use of food in rituals, for example. Obviously, economics factors in, anthropology too, and politics, the idea of nation boundaries and cuisines. There's a lot, almost anything is the answer. Could you explain to me how politics fits in? That's slightly confusing to me. Political anthropology really treats power, obviously power, and power has to do with a lot of things. We look at food in wartime. We look at questions of distribution, which is often very political. Amartya Sen talks about the fact that we have enough food. We just are really bad at distribution, and that is a political concern. Corky, when I think of food and anthropology, I think, oh, people who live here eat corn because that's what grows. People who live here eat rice because that's what grows. I don't know how to think about it beyond that, except that I have this core belief that what we eat defines what group we belong to. I think it can go both ways. You're talking about rice growing, creating a rice-eating culture, but actually probably things move in a much more complex way than that. Let's take rice for an example. Rice originated in two parts of the world, in sub-Saharan Africa and in East Asia. And it moved according to trade routes from Asia towards Persia, for example, Arab traders and Chinese traders. It moved from Africa to Louisiana because of slavery. The people who could eat rice ate rice, it's true, but rice as a staple follows human movement and rather than humans being defined by what they find near them. You make your culture. Culture isn't just a given in nature, and I think that's a really interesting thing. My son and I just did this book, and we'd have chapters on staple foods and where the staple has developed along with the culture. The staple food is there, but then culture does this to that or that to it or allows elites to eat it, but not ordinary people to eat it. All of those factors will change how that substance is used and prepared, of course. Give me an example of a food that would work that way. I'm thinking of how tomatoes got to Italy, but give me an example of something that comes to the culture, moves up essentially the food chain. Uh There's some very good examples of that all over the place. If you look at chilies and their departure with the conquistadores to the old world, so-called old world, and then you see them traveling all the way to Korea where there hadn't been any red things, chilies or tomatoes for that matter, and then began to be the thing that most people think of when they think of Korean food. They think of gochujang or the red chili or kimchi. But look at Ireland and the potato from Peru getting to Ireland and becoming the staple to the point where it 
devastated the population when there was a potato blight. Wait, wait, wait. The potatoes in Ireland came from Peru to Ireland? Yes. Explain that to me. That is a revelation. (laughs) The origin of a lot of foods began to move around in what Alfred Crosby calls the Columbian Exchange. After Christopher Colombo in 1492, there were foods that were native to the so-called New World that started moving back through the later conquistadores. Columbus didn't have much to do with the movements of food. He thought he was in the Spice Islands. And he kept scratching the trunks of trees to see if that wasn't cinnamon. But the potato originated in the Andean highlands. Its various forms, of course, proliferated and changed, hybridized, all kinds of things happened to it. But it came to the so-called old world and took literal root because it was cheap and easy to grow in great amounts. So it became a poor people's food. And especially in Ireland, where the English were exploiting the Irish and people were starving. So at first, potatoes saved Ireland, and in the end, it nearly destroyed it. That is interesting. I have never heard that before. Huh. That's interesting. I know what happened to Ireland, but it never occurred to me that potato wasn't a crop that just grew there. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of things like that. You said the tomato in in Italy, they didn't have tomatoes until the same period, late 1500s. The new, so-called new world didn't have tobacco and coffee and tea until the conquerors came and brought those in the other direction, along with terrible diseases, which also decimated the native populations. And of course, I suppose if you looked at sugar, as an enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Sugar is a wonderful topic. Sugar, there's a wonderful book, Sweetness and Power, by Sidney Mintz, who is probably the great, the dean of food studies, really. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But he talks about sugar, which comes from the old world around India, what is now India. And then it traveled it was only used in Europe as a kind of seasoning, not as a real big People didn't have a lot of sugar in their food, maybe just a bit. It was used the way salt and pepper might be used rather than in cups. But the Brits, who colonized parts of the Caribbean, saw a market for plantation economy in the Caribbean, brought sugar to the Caribbean and slavery. And it was the slaves, the enslaved peoples, who created the enormous sugar plantation crop that, of course, (laughs) then got us up in Boston involved because of the triangle trade and the molasses. You probably know all about that, moving sugar, molasses, rum, and slaves around. And so just to remind myself, how did the triangle work? Where did it begin? Started with the sugar? It did, but there were also other crops that were involved. It isn't only sugar, but that's the most famous one. And what would happen is the enslaved people in the Caribbean on the islands that had groundwater, they couldn't grow sugar where there wasn't groundwater because it's very water-intensive. Anyway, those enslaved people created the sugar, which was shipped up sometimes in the form of molasses, but often as sugar and made into molasses in Boston. The Great Molasses Flood, I think, was 1919 in January, where the badly made huge tank 
spewed forth millions and millions of gallons of molasses that was actually running faster than people could get away from it. So they drowned in it. So that was a kind of historical moment when the distortions were all too apparent. But then the molasses and the rum would be shipped both back to England from Boston and to Africa, where more slaves were bought with it, and those enslaved people then back to the Caribbean. Well, it actually, it's almost four points. It's the Caribbean, Boston, England, and, and sub-Saharan Africa. It's crazy. Follow the money takes on a whole different meaning when you think of it like that. Wow. And we'll be back with Corky White in a moment. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. And we are back with Corky White. I want to ask you a little bit about how your new book came to be. It's not every mother and son who can write a book together. How did that happen? Yeah, it's a miracle. (laughs) I think one of the things we're often asked, how is it that you work together and why didn't you kill each other in the process? For example? (laughs) We had exactly one fight in the four years it took. And I think it's both it's because we both had a really strong interest in this book, and we weren't going to put it at risk. Also, we don't live together or anything. It's kind of easy. Also, Ben is very filial, I have to say. He's a nice person. And whereas I can fly off the handle, I haven't seen him do that, at least not in our situation. Anyway, we were asked by one publisher, or at least I was asked first, to write a world history of food that would encompass a all nice common... easy task just oh, yeah. a world history oh, yeah. of food and could right. you do it and in under 300 is... pages <laughs> how about 167 pages is all we were given <laughs> so i i thought uh do i really want to take this on and i thought well ben's a historian of food we'll get him on it and indeed we started out with that until we got really fed up with the stress of getting all times and all places into 167 pages. So we just said, "Uh, no, we're not doing this. But since each of us separately had published quite a bit with the University of California Press, we took an idea to them of doing it our way for California. And they were really wonderful and allowed us to do what we wanted to do, which was more thematic and less chronological and more depth in fewer places. I'm the ethnographer, which means I'm a storyteller. And Ben's a historian, which means he's 
very good scholar, but he also has a wonderful writing style. He had just published a book back then called Meat Planet, which was on laboratory-created meat and gotten some success with that and was also doing ethnography even as a historian in these laboratories all over the world. So we had enough similarities, but we managed to do it. took some time because neither of us took time off from what we were supposed to be doing. I think we're just trying to help people get a little conscious about what they're doing when they're making or eating or growing or whatever it takes to put food on the table. It's a fascinating book. And your storytelling gift is evident in it. And so I encourage anybody listening to get the book, The Ways of Eating. Corky, tell me a little bit about how you grew up and became oh. this august person who not only... <laughs> oh. Tell me where did and I, how. The, the answer is, did I grow up, of course. That's everybody's <laughs> answer. But I grew up in a, a kind of crazy family. My parents are both Jewish. My father's family's from London and definitely socialist and apostatized, nothing, nothing religious, please. And my mother came from an observant family from Vienna in St. Paul, Minnesota. They both ended up at the University of Minnesota, and that's how they met. And so I grew up definitely Midwestern. I grew up half the year in Minnesota with my mom's family, or two-thirds of the year in Chicago, one-third in Minnesota, and in rural Minnesota. It's interesting. We had nothing much that defined us as Jewish except maybe the high holidays. And we'd go from Chicago to St. Paul for Passover, things like that. But I went to school in, as an attached elementary school to the University of Chicago called the Lab School, Laboratory School. And that's where I went. And I can't even begin to think. When we moved east, I was 13, I suddenly discovered I was Jewish because that's where... <laughs> There were bagels. We'd never seen a bagel. <laughs> and so my New York friends, my New York Jewish friends said, you're not Jewish. How could you be Jewish? You don't know from anything, nothing. I don't know any. I grew up eating no foods that East Coast people think are Jewish. We ate Jewish foods, but they were my grandmother's Viennese. She grew up in Vienna. Was it a food what, what? culture in your family? Was food important? I think my mother hated cooking, didn't she cooked because she had to, but we had pretty awful meals. Food consciousness was pretty negative, but my grandmother was a fantastic cook and she made her strudel by hand, pulling the dough over the tablecloth and all that. So I had some food in me from the Minnesota part of my life, but Chicago, not so much. Um, <laughs> sometimes my dad took over because he couldn't stand it anymore. and. But his idea of food was somehow Dada art. So he would, like, <laughs> like I remember a Thanksgiving where he sewed extra drumsticks all over the turkey because he felt there wasn't going to be enough. So it looked like a porcupine. And then one dish where there was a fish within a fish within a fish within a fish all the way down to a sardine in the middle. But they were all bone. So you bake it, and it's just this mass of inedible... It's all concept. It was pure concept. <laughs> Performance okay, so art as it. food. <laughs> yeah. Not getting there, though. Not getting to the food. Well, it's an interest in food. Did, did you go out to eat a lot? Was that, I'm just curious. You became a caterer, but you had to know something. 
about how to... I was interested. This the, I, I became a caterer when I was in my 20s and had left home. I had also... We had no money. And in Chicago, we never went out to eat and never went out to eat in Minnesota. And just no money. And so that... Uh, the idea of eating out was much less common anyway in the Midwest. People did not eat out. This we thought of as a New York thing. Even here, when we moved east, we never ate out. So I mean, just there wasn't enough money. What I think I got the bug for eating and thinking about food. Um, when I was graduating from college, there was a grant for an undergraduate who'd done really well. And I got married the day before commencement. This was at Harvard and the day before commencement. And then there was commencement. And the day after commencement, we took this grant, my young husband and I, of two days and went around the world for a year. And that I'd never, that was another thing because of no money. We never had traveled. So I had never been outside this country. I never had a passport. I'd never even been on an airplane. So there I am, new bride, graduated, and on my first plane trip, they were all um, they were all prop planes. And there was no jets. And my first foreign country, after something like eight refueling stops, was Japan. We just kept going around the world for a year. We got back exactly a year to the date we'd left. But I had eaten everywhere, and I would just. I think that was what did it. I think it just turned me into a global food trotter. Wow, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. If a community wants to keep itself together, how does food play into that for community identity? That's really a wonderful question that probably can be answered differently for different places, too. One of the things I started collecting when I was a young caterer was spiral-bound community cookbooks. And in those days, this is this late 60s, early 70s, in those days, they did express community. I mean, some of them had just a little bit of community section at the beginning, and the rest was all kind of standard template food, general kitchen food of the mid-Americas. But I thought that was something very interesting that a, you know, ladies' auxiliary or a women's group at a church. I, I thought it was interesting because I thought these people have found a way of expressing themselves. And they were expressing themselves to themselves. They were confirming something. Often food could be used as a resistance thing. You now, we don't eat your food we are not you. There's just as much of that as we eat this because we are. So in my neighborhood now, there's a Greek festival coming up. There's also a Serbian church festival coming up. And I go to all of these because they are in the act of preservation. And often those foods are not what they eat on regular days. You know, their home foods are specially set apart to celebrate their origin but they may not be what they eat all the time, which may be more assimilated. And there's all kinds of ways in which this happens. If you go to Boston's North End, which is labeled and branded, oh, here you are in Italy. Well, there's a lot of subsurface stories there that say, no, you're in the North End. The people who live there hate it to be called Little Italy. We are North Enders. 
they don't even say Italian-American, they say North Enders. And their food, which used to be a source of great identity two or three generations ago, was la cucina povera, the poor people's cuisine. And it would be beans and pasta and vegetables, very little meat and pasta. So now you can go to specific places that maintain the North End's food, but you also find the neighborhood welcoming, well, some people anyway, tourists mostly, things that come right from Italy now, which is nothing like the North Enders' own food because they want to gentrify the whole thing. So you have Italian chefs with white tablecloth restaurants doing extraordinarily wonderful things, but they're not local identity food. It's just an interesting shift. Mm. But um, you'll go to Galleria Umberto and get the best Sicilian pizza square you'll ever have, and that's remaining to be, quote-unquote, authentic, a word that I shy away from, by the way. Identity food is a huge part of anthropology. Why do you shy away from the word authentic? I thought you wouldn't ask that. (laughs) Um, It was a gimme. I'm afraid I set it up. Authenticity is, to me, much more about the person asking for it than a legitimate, singular, real thing. It's very interesting when somebody says, my food is authentic, or is this food authentic? And what's their agenda? What do they need? Why do they need it? And because food has always changed. Food changes from one iteration of making a challah to another iteration of making the same challah. There's nothing that stands still. But the idea, the need for authenticity is often an identity need, a preservation need, a quest for something. One of my graduate students right now is writing her thesis on the authenticity problem as a problem. That to me is really fascinating. But I think, here's what I tell my students. If your grandmother says her recipe is authentic, by God, it's authentic. You never quarrel with your grandmother. (laughs) I have a friend who runs an Iranian restaurant, and she makes her mother's food and her grandmother's food. But other Iranians come in and say, no, that's not right, because that's not how my mother made it, and that's not how my grandmother made it, and therefore your food is inauthentic. (laughs) Yes, it becomes a a battering ram and a source of personal identity, pride, um, one-upsmanship. There's so many ways in which authenticity plays out. And I think one of the problems is you come away from your home country. You no longer have the ingredients that the quote-unquote original or home version, let's call it home version of the food, had. You don't have the same deliciously ripe tomatoes because they've traveled across country in a train or something. You don't have exactly the same spices or they're too old or something like that. So just the movement has changed the food. And then you might substitute, we call that, you adapt a little bit to use the local ingredients. There's another step called acculturation, where you've taken on something that is in the new local area to make your food possible because you're straying a little bit from the original recipe because you simply can't get the right thing. You don't have the right kind of butter. I don't know what it is. but So that acculturation takes a little more of the local 
the new into it. Hmm. And finally, assimilation, which, you know, everything's up for grabs. I seem to have a bug about this in my head, but I don't understand barbecued chicken pizza with pineapple. I have never understood that. But I'm sure that it makes a lot of sense. You taught in Hawaii. Maybe it does make a lot of sense. (laughs) Those are really good examples, Louisa, because um, I happen to really not like the pineapple on the pizza. I just don't like it. But that's not a gesture towards some Neapolitan pizza. Pizza dough is a blank slate. You can write anything on it. There's an interesting story about pizza in Japan, though, because as with everything, the Japanese just do it better. When pizza started being popular in Japan about 40 years ago, there was, and there still is, an Associazione della Vera Pizza Napoletana in Italy, in Naples. And they travel to Japan every year or two to certify Japanese pizza as the real thing. Rache. There are now more Neapolitan certified pizza restaurants in Tokyo than in any other city in the world. And that just blows my mind. And I've been to a lot of them, and they are truly amazing. (laughs) Good pizza in (laughs) Japan. Good to know. Corky, one of the projects that I'm very interested in is this question of why there are so many Jewish women, like yourself and like myself, in different aspects but with great success in the world of food. And you as an anthropologist, I think, could give me a sense of that. Is there something inherent? And these are women who are observant. These are women who are non-observant. These are people who write cookbooks or people who write legislation or people who are editors and media people, test kitchen people. What do you see as the through line for that? Why is it? Your thought is a good one that I can't even really begin to answer in a simple way. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Have we all gravitated towards food? The more I found out about my family, the more I got interested in food, but not my immediate parents because they were bizarre about food, but my grandmother from Vienna, I really thought about her a lot. I don't think we lived in matriarchal households or anything, but maybe some did. But I think we we lived in families where the woman was important, even ritually important. And that especially because so many holidays, except Yom Kippur, are based on food and the kitchen and the table became the center of family activities for a lot of people. And that would naturally point at or define the production of food as female and the service of food as female. I don't want to indulge in stereotypes or anything, but it does Oh, go seem for like, it. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like I found in a box in the basement, there's everything in the basement, a rolling pin that had been my grandmother's or great-grandmother's rolling pin in Austria. Finally, it had come down to my grandmother who had brought it over. And all across it were the names of her women, friends, and family written on the wooden rolling pin. And it's just such a, it's like a document. I knew maybe two or three of them because most of them didn't make it out, but I 
there's enough there to know that this was women celebrating women with a kitchen device. I don't, I have no idea what more to say about that. I think it depended on where food fit into the family lore, the family culture. Was there a family dish or was a woman identified by her food such that everybody would say, oh, mom, make that for my birthday. I think the problem is diversity, but I think what is striking is what you're pointing out, that there are so many of us that are involved with food. And my guess is each one of the women might have a slightly different answer about why she's in food, but that they would also be, oh yeah, they would wake up to this fact that you're citing and say, isn't this interesting? And maybe we'll figure it out someday. The problem came in the 1970s when to be identified with food was actually considered by some anti-feminist. And one of the reasons my advisor told me to take all the food off my resume is he was trying to protect me because it would have feminized me forever and not let me into the boys club of academe. But anyway, I think that's a historical moment that we're long past. Yep. No, I understand that as well, that my own mother, when I started writing about food, and my mother was not into food at all, and she said to me, couldn't you write about something important? Who's interested in reading about food and food people? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's an interesting perspective. It's not mine, but okay. I do wonder, and I'm just wondering because I'm exploring this thought, this whole idea of the family dinner table, and especially in Jewish households, but not exclusively in Jewish households, that there are rituals and ritualized foods that we eat at home around the table that happen every year. We make fun about matzo ball soup, but we all know when we eat it and what we do. We make fun of, in my family, we make fun of noodle pudding or luxion kugel yeah. or whatever, but we all know that is what we do when we sit around and eat it. The consciousness of food and family and ritual and the sort of year after year, year over year, and who is the torch yeah. carrier, I don't think it's uniquely Jewish, but I also think it is very Jewish. I think so, too. We had our own kind of Jewish Norman Rockwell paintings of the Jewish table, and uh, everybody gathered around it. And my father had his own ritual. He's, we would all sit down, and he would develop this stentorian voice, and he would say, Was haben Sie heute gelernt? And, and we were supposed to be reporting in on our days. Wait, and, translate and that. Translate that for us. What, what, what did he say in those stentorian tones? Uh, what, what have you learned today? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a very sort of orderly, rigid idea about it. The table in some families, as it was in mine, was a learning experience where your manners were watched. And in other families, a very let loose kind of time where you could all talk over each other and have a really interesting time. But the food itself, you mentioned matzo ball soup, and that is so... I don't use the word icon loosely, nor do I use the word authentic loosely, but that was a dish that needed to approximate some ideal platonic model in somebody's head. 
when I grew up and I was a rebel with a cause, I made matzo ball soup with a Vietnamese pho broth and the chilies and the ginger and the coriander. The matzo balls are so happy when they're soaking up that broth. So I was doing it deliberately to fight off the, the ideal or something. It's great. Fascinating. Well, Corky, it's so much fun to talk to you. We're going to talk to you more, I know, but I have to let you go. And I'll t- say again that The Ways of Eating is a great book, super readable. And I, for one, like the fact that it's short because it's provocative and punchy. And I sat down and read it in an afternoon, and then I talked to everybody in the world about it. So congratulations <laughs> on it. It's really pretty great. And we'll Louise, t- it's a, a real pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much for this time. No, it's great. It's great. And thank you. We'll let you go, but there'll be more from us in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Corky's Ways of Eating is one of the finalists of our 2023 Readable Feast Culinary Book Awards. For more information on our finalists and our winners, visit thereadablefeast.com. And... Stay tuned for our new sister podcast, Cockleffel, Jewish Women Stir the Pot. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.